In this episode from 2012, Peter Smagorinsky speaks about his concrete and abstract understandings of and experiences with Vygotsky's theory of concepts and concept development. Peter's book, Vygotsky and Literacy Research, a Methodological Framework, winner of the prestigious David H. Russell Research Award, is also featured in this discussion. Please enjoy. Hello. Hey, I'm back on the desktop now. Okay, you're back in back in action here. Can you hear me? Quite well. All right, let's try to let's see what we can get done. Okay. So. So we we had just finished an introductory. You kind of had asked me about my own how my interest in Vygotsky had developed, and I gave a, a kind of a rough outline, um, and. It's interesting that there are, I'm part of a generation where if you didn't study with a, someone who'd been to Russia, you know, if you didn't study with Mike Cole or Jim Wirtz or Sylvia Scribner, you were kind of on your own. Mm. So I'm very much uh, an autodidact. I really taught myself. Um, you know, I read and tried to get on listservs, and I tried to talk to people, but I never had any mentoring when it came to Vygotsky, and I never took any courses, or there was no formal under no formal knowledge. So it was a you know I really had to scrap my way through some very difficult reading uh, without the benefit of good conversations to understand uh, you know to to at least get my uh, footing. In this uh, in this uh, way of thinking, I wonder if, if there are any advantages to that. You feel? Um, I I I sure would have rather <laughs> with Mike Cole or uh, someone like that who knew what he was doing. Yeah, no doubt. Had to just you know, it's slugging your way through it, and then finding out that you know that you know all the translations are bad, and it, you know just. You're just, uh, it's, a very, it's a very tenuous and often frustrating experience, although um, you, if you work hard at it, if you really dedicate yourself to, to finding out what this is all about, it, uh, I think the payoff is quite great. There's a nice part in your book where you talk about how Vygotsky makes you like, take detailed notes and underline everything for 50 pages at a time, and then <laughs> yeah. basically pulls the rug out. And then he pulls the rug out yeah. and then says, well, actually, uh, Adler is full of it, and uh, and uh, here's what you should think instead. So, oh, man, yeah, it's crazy. I'm going to hold your book up just to um, there we go. give a little reference. We like to see that. I, I wish it didn't cost so much, but... Um, this is one of my Christmas presents to myself, so... Oh, well, uh, <laughs> it must Good not... book. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one that... Deserves a couple of readings, you know. You got that and some and uh, some coal, right? Yeah. <laughs> C O A L. Yes. Um, I I just want to say one thing before we move ahead. Um, I wrote this little disclaimer. Um, I hope you answer whatever I'm asking with the degree of specificity that you feel is appropriate for this forum, because uh -huh. I've only been lurking for about a year or so, and uh, you know you're much more enculturated here. So if, if if I'm asking questions that seem to imply like basic answers and you want to go deeper or vice versa, by all means, you know, 
I hope you could decide that. So, or okay. do you want to take my questions in a new way? Yeah, I'll be happy if Thanks. I can answer, uh, give any kind of answer to these questions. So, uh, yeah, well, I guess the first one's kind of a toughie. So, um, forgive me if I read just a little bit. Go for um, it. This is really focused on Vygotsky's own work, and uh, Andy Blunden has written uh, that Vygotsky does not tell us what a concept is. I mean, he does tell us what a concept is, but he hardly puts it in bold type, and I really. Uh -huh. I like the way he worded that. And uh, the topic today is, is, is Vygotsky's theory of concepts. Right. So Now, are you reading from uh, one of Andy's posts, or did you this get was a book? This was from his book that's posted online. Oh, it is? Uh, okay. Yeah, this is Chapter 13. Okay. So. And I ha I, sorry to say I haven't read it, but I can, um, I can guess a little bit just based on what I know of Andy, but uh, I, I don't want to speak for him. Um, but I, I definitely felt, I felt that way, reading and thinking in speech, you know, for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, he tells us what a concept is, but he doesn't really put it in bold type. It's, you got to do a lot of work. Sure. And, I mean, in my own reading of that book and my reading of the, the listserv, the XMCA listserv, and, and my reading of your writing, um, I've definitely seen that to be the case. And, like there are a lot of topics that seem to be at play when he's talking about concepts. Like for example, um, he talks about concepts and word meaning, concepts and generalization, the relationship, the interplay between everyday and spontaneous concepts, um, mm -hmm. development of concepts, social, historical, cultural, like influences or origins of concepts, and and these are just a few. So. Well, I I think I should be interviewing you. <laughs> With that in mind, <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of like setting you up for a loaded question, I guess. Like, I guess with all that in mind, how would you, can you talk about your understanding of his work on concepts? Well, I guess, first of all, I would, I would talk about why I'm interested in concepts. And um, I'll talk about... Uh, my profession, my professional work, I guess you say, my work as a teacher, educator, and researcher, and my work as a, a landscaper and gardener, because a lot of my understanding of trying to understand Vygotsky while engaging with my uh, with the interviews and the my research on beginning teachers came in conjunction with a vast uh, project I've undertaken to design and install my own landscapes. And I live in a part of the country here in the U.S. where land is very cheap, very different from the Philadelphia area, and so it's very easy for uh, for someone on uh, you know an educator's salary to buy uh, over an acre of land. And so I've got an acre and a quarter of land that I've uh, that I've designed and planted um, and maintained, and uh, there. It's, that's just what I've learned is it's not just a matter of digging holes and putting things in them, uh, uh, and 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 this is where my understanding of concepts. I, I was while I was trying to write about concepts, I was continually refining my understanding of the conceptions I had for uh, ecosystems and the role of different plants and animals and people in an ecosystem. Uh, plants, animals. Uh, inert objects like stone and uh, 
soil composition, all these things. And I'll just give one example, and I, I can't remember if I talk about this one in the book or not, but um, there's, there's sort of a, if, if you don't know much about planting, in other words, if you're, if you're really working at the level of the complex in, in Vygotsky's thinking, in Vygotsky's uh, uh, sequence of going from uh, complexes to pseudo-concepts to concepts, this is a very much a pre-conceptual way of thinking. Um, you might think that all plants do well in the sun and that all plants do well with being watered. Uh, if, if a plant is wilting, the first thing you should do is water it. And these are kind of common sense uh, understandings of the plant kingdom based on a, a, a limited understanding of some plants. And what, uh, what, it, what most gardeners do over time is that they learn after watering a few plants to death that what they have is only a partial understanding of the need of a plant. And if, if you're spending money on these things and spending a lot of time on them and, you, and you're killing them, it can be a very costly way of learning, of developing your concept. But I think that that's, that's the way a difficult concept is to learn. You, you, you get a sense of um, uh, the way Vygotsky talks about them, it, it, it's concepts are abstractions in which the internal groupings have very high levels of consistency. And the example, one of the examples he gives is um, of, a, of a pseudo concept is that if you, if you don't really understand the distinction between a fish and a whale, you'll look at a whale, it's a big fishy looking thing and you'll call it a fish. But you'll, upon careful, more careful uh, uh, analysis, you'll see that it has things like hair. And, uh, uh, you know, there are actually fish that do have lungs. When I tried to, I thought this was a very simple example when I started on it, but there are fish with lungs, and there may be, there might even be fish with hair, I can't remember. But it's, but, but this is the, this is the kind of the, the simple distinction that he makes to identify what a pseudo-complex is. It's the inclusion of the whale in the category of fish. And you can empirically demonstrate that that's not the case. You can empirically say, no, 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 these things are, this is a mammal and here's why. And you can point to the things. Uh, I think that a, a much harder situation arises in trying to get conceptions of teaching because uh, any, pretty much any informed biologist can tell you what the difference between a fish and a whale there's disagreement on whether something's good teaching or not. And so the conceptions, the social conceptions that we have are much more, um, they're, they're moving targets. They're more like amoebas, you know, you can't, they're harder to pin down and what they look like depends on what angle you're looking from. And, uh, and you know, to, if, if you're, if you're a, a what, well, let me give an example from, I was interviewing a, uh, a mentor teacher in the world, and she came up with the, she described herself as being very student-centered. And that was really surprising to me because when I watched her classroom, it just seemed to be driven by using worksheets and, you know, very orthodox readings of books. Uh, it seemed to me to be very teacher and tech center, but she described herself as a very student-centered teacher. Um, and so my first response to that was kind of a, well, you don't know what you're talking about. 
you know, you're not student-centered at all. I've watched your class, you know, much as the biologist might look at the fish and the whale and say, no, no, I can tell you what the differences are. But then I talked to her in greater detail, and it turned out that her own teenage son, I think it was, had died in a car accident um, while maybe a senior in high school. And it had been such a, you know, as you can imagine, a, such a horrible and uh, moving event for her in her life. And with that event, she did become more, more uh, sensitive to kids. It didn't show up in her, her teaching methods so much, but it made her, it personalized her teaching in ways that weren't evident to me as an observer. So I'm using this as an example because in the social world, things aren't as cut and dried as they are in the biological world. And so Vygotsky's examples, Vygotsky often uses biological examples uh, to, to demonstrate his points. Um, and I think that that's very useful when you're learning, uh, you're learning about these things, but it's much trickier when you get into, uh, you know, deciding whether someone's a freedom fighter or a terrorist. You know, if you have a con trying to develop a conception of, well, what's a, what's a terrorist? You know, and of course in the U.S. and around the world, we have this great concern with terrorism now. But I think that we're all aware of people throughout history, and if you think of Michael Collins in Dublin, to some he was a terrorist, to some he was a freedom fighter. Um, so getting, you know, arriving at a, at a, at a, at a, uh, the sort of neatly en uh, encapsulated concept that with, with everything nice and internally consistent in social matters, I think is almost impossible to achieve. And so, to me, a concept is an ideal, at least when you think in terms of social sciences, which is, you know, what I'm primarily interested in. Uh, it, it's, it's an ideal, and I don't know that you ever really arrive at a, a fixed set of uh, items, you know, in the set, if you think of this mathematically. If you think of the items in a set, the, the, what becomes categorized within a concept is always moving and every new example seems to change it a little bit and so I think that you're always working toward a concept without ever quite getting there so that's that's uh, I, I can't even remember your question but that's uh, at least the, the way I'd start the answer well I guess with that in mind is let's say um, students in class go through a process of Mm -hmm. moving, moving towards a scientific concept and everything goes really well and they can articulate a, you know, a, a very nuanced understanding of this scientific concept. Yeah. Does, does that, in your view, count as a true concept, as Vygotsky well, called it, or is it, or is it you never quite get there, or? Well, let's, I, let's, let's back up a little bit because I, you know, this, this discussion needs some, some, uh, definition. Okay. And so you referred to scientific concepts, which aren't necessarily about science. Right. And um, he, Vygotsky contrasted them with what, at least I'm not saying what he called, what his translators have translated as uh, spontaneous concepts. But another, I think there, there's other language that I find more uh, useful in describing them, and those would be everyday and academic. So what he calls spontaneous concepts are the ones, sort of like a lot of my, what I've learned in the yard, 
uh, in my landscaping, I've learned about plants by killing them personally. And, um, and you know, or planting them in the wrong places. You know, this is what I've learned from planting, uh, from growing gardens here in the state of Georgia, here in the U.S. Um, if the only understanding that I have of gardening came from that activity, in other words, without any of the reading that I do, I get a lot of garden magazines, so there is a formal component, but a lot of it is, you know, planting and, and seeing what happens. If I were to move to uh, Nevada, the knowledge that I have about gardening would be very difficult to, uh, to transplant along with me into this new environment, into an arid, rocky uh, you know, climate with different temperatures and things like that. And the limitation that he, that he uh, spoke of with everyday concepts is that they're not amenable to repurposing, to adaptation and repurposing in new situations. Okay, and so that's that's what he called spontaneous or everyday concepts, and it's a type of concept we learn. And if I never garden outside my own yard, I don't really need that much more, because I can learn pretty much what I need to know by being by working in my own yard. Uh, and then uh, he contrasted that with academic or or scientific concepts, and those are the ones that are learned through formal instruction uh, at a level of abstraction that enables one to um, to repurpose to re to re them in a new set of circumstances. So the, you're you're actually extracting formal principles like you don't plant azaleas in the sun, um, which is one thing I've done and uh, much to their dismay. And uh, uh, what but. But there are there's, there are a couple things that I think need to be said. One is that those spontaneous or those uh, everyday and academic concepts aren't so neatly divided. So, uh, for instance, if you're a Boy Scout, you know it's a it's a very hands. I don't know if you're ever a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout. You learn a lot by camping, by reading the material, and camping. And being out with other campers and having a, you know, presumably a scoutmaster who knows how to start a fire and things like that. And so there are a lot of settings that aren't strictly everyday or academic, but that involve parts of either or parts of both. And so I, I think it's you just have to take certain of the distinctions that he made. And you know, he was writing at this furious pace and he died very young and so there's just a lot that's not quite elaborated and this liminal area between everyday and academic is one of those uh, things that, that maybe that's the sort of thing that Andy Blunden was talking about that that just don't get articulated they don't get they're not part of that discussion and uh, but I think it's it's it is something that needs to be accounted for the other thing that he does account for and that I think is really important is that uh, he talks about the interplay between conceptual fields. In other words, if I only have the everyday understanding without the formal knowledge, say, of why azaleas die in the sun, you know, something about photosynthesis or the... Um, I, I, I plant a lot of Japanese maples, a number of which I've killed, a number of which have survived, and I learned that it, the... the the color and shape of the leaf have to do with how much sunshine they can take. Now that's a 
that's a formal piece of knowledge that I can abstract, and whenever I buy a new Japanese maple, I know it's sun tolerance. And so that tells me where I can put it. All right. So it's, um, it's this interplay between experiential or everyday knowledge and formal or academic knowledge that produces sturdy concepts. So if he, said, he says, if you only have one or the other, it's not very sturdy. In other words, it won't hold up in, in continual uh, reapplications. And uh, so the, the, and the reason I'm bringing this up is the example you gave was in school. If you uh, learn a concept like democracy in school without having any experience with democratic action, you might be able to recite the rules, but you wouldn't be able to do much with it. So it's this, and I think one of the reasons that I, that I found that to be such a provocative idea was that in teacher education, there's, all, there's this ongoing discussion, what's better theory or practice? And the answer is, neither one does you much good without the other. And so it's not a question of which, but how you integrate them. So that I think that, that, that uh, that's how I would answer your question about the, the school-based knowledge. If it's just uh, empty words, in other words, if you have nothing that you can personally um, inscribe in that language, then it's not useful and sturdy. See, that's really helpful for me because um, I was, I kind of had this sense that the scientific concept was a little more elevated than the than the everyday concept um, in Vygotsky's viewpoint, and it, well, I had a hard time understanding what, what he and others meant by how um, the the everyday concept moves upward toward the science toward the scientific, but the scientific also moves downward toward the everyday. Yeah, there, there's got to be a there, they 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 mesh, and there's a there's a term I can't remember where this comes from, but it it gets invoked in these uh, in these discussions. It's rising to the concrete, and it really does give a uh, an important role to everyday activity, and so uh, that's why uh, Gene Lave and Barbara Rogoff, well, gosh, in the '80s had a book called I think Everyday Cognition. That you know looked at skiers and people grocery shopping, you know, really doing mundane things, um, because cognition there matters. And if you're grocery shopping and you consistently buy poor values, that has big consequences for you. Right, doing that. So, um, I'm interested in, in uh, how you go about s studying empirically the development of concepts and. If you could talk a little bit about maybe some some of the work that you've done or your methodologies sure. and some of your findings. Well, the one thing to keep in mind is that a that a concept, uh, at least if you're thinking, if you if you, I, I can only speak to Vygotsky's notion of concepts here, and I can't speak to anyone else's. So, if if if, if someone else has a different uh, point of origin for this discussion, it might, what I'm saying might not be true for them, but. The, it's, 
it's absolutely critically important to keep in mind that Vygotsky was a developmental psychologist. And so it's not just concepts, but concept development that interested him. That interested him. And if you're in, and if concept development is what you're after, you need to look at something in a longitudinal way. Now, the, one of my uh, students in, in a class I taught last uh, about a year ago, uh, I taught a Vygotsky seminar while I was writing that book, and um, she she was very uh, she was very surprised to see Vygotsky. Uh, summarizing a study by one of his colleagues, it might have been Luria, uh, but it might not have been. At any rate, what the what the researcher had looked at was a group of five-year-olds, a group of ten-year-olds, and a group of fifteen-year-olds, or something like that, doing the same problem, and uh, and drawing conclusions about concept development based on the way the five-year-olds, the ten-year-olds, and the fifteen-year-olds uh, performed on this task, whatever it was. Um, and I, it really surprised me too because that's that's a very crude developmental study because it's not tracking the same person. It's making assum assumptions about homogeneity based on common cultural backgrounds. You know, these kids would have to all be from the same school or something like that, same neighborhood even. Um, whereas what I've done looked follows individuals over time, uh, and these are beginning teachers, at least in the studies that I've done so far, and I'm very interested by the way in which uh, conceptions are mediated socially, culturally, and by implication historically, um, and what I'm Vygotsky's, he wasn't a stage theorist, but he did describe concept development in stages. And there were, and so complexes are these, these unities that have a lot, too much differentiation in them. They're, they're, the elements aren't united, so um, uh, to give a simple example of a little kid who looks at the moon and says, ball, you know, that's a, that would be a, a pseudo-complex. It's not quite a ball, even though the, you know. So all round things are balls to the little kid who hasn't started to differentiate yet. And then this Vygotsky says is mediated uh, becomes uh, you know with enough examples and counterexamples and uh, and assistance, all the all the the false members of this collection get weeded out until finally you know what a ball is. All right. Now balls are pretty simple. Uh, but a conception of teaching is very, very hard. And uh, so what I'm finding is that there is so much pulling at early beginning teachers to become something, and with many of these forces being contradictory, that there, I'm not seeing this, this progression towards something. Because uh, you know, you, you, most people go through uh, traditional schooling as we know it, and you know they're, they've done a lot of workbooks and sat through a lot of lectures, and you know this is what Dan Lordy called the apprenticeship of observation. It's what you learn about teaching from having been taught. And if anything, this gets intensified in college, where at least at a place like Georgia, your first couple of years you're in these big lecture halls. You know, so your role is to go and sit 
and take notes and be tested uh, before you get to your major. And so up to the point where people go into their, uh, start taking their education courses, a lot of their schooling has taught them that teaching is talking and learning is listening and repeating. So that's one, that's one very powerful model because it starts so early and it can start at maybe age three when people go to preschool and they start getting socialized. Uh, and, and that's actually something that came up in my research. A first grade teacher found that her kids were so socialized to what she was calling traditional schooling. In first grade, she was having to have them unlearn the way she described it, uh, how to be a student. So you can imagine what it's like by the time they get to their junior year in college. There's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done, or that, that not, I shouldn't say that needs to be done, but there's a lot of unlearning available if that's not the way you want them to go about their teaching careers. So um, what, what tends to happen then is that they go into university courses where they get a lot of theory, often diversity theory, you know, uh, multiculturalism, uh, social justice, you know, the, you can probably predict the common tropes that come up in teacher ed that are completely at odds with what they've learned from being students, you know, these, and that's where you get conceptions of student teaching as being, I'm still going to give the worksheets out, but I'm going to ask the kid how his weekend was, all right, very, and that's, I, I, I don't, I, I hope that didn't sound dismissive, uh, because the teacher that I, from whom I get that example, was very sincere about that being a huge step, a, a life-changing, you know, a, a profession-changing experience for her to begin taking that step. So I, I don't want to trivialize it. Um, but then, so they're in these courses, but they're immediately sent out to schools where, especially now, you know, got the Common Core standards. Everything's standardized. Standardized tests. Standardized curriculum. Uh, the kids in school A need to be on the same page as the cool kids in school B on you know March third and you know what what have you, and so that if they're getting something theoretically on campus that's being contradicted by everything that happens in the school, um, where's the you know is there a direction they're going in? Actually, what they tend to do is they revert back to what the schools are doing because that's who's paying you know that's who's cutting their paycheck, that's who's giving the, they get to define good teaching there. And the good teacher is one tend, who's kind of obedient to the, to the machinery of the schooling. Uh, whereas in, you know, in universities, we like to teach them to be subversive and, uh, you know, different and uh, student-oriented and all these uh, things that we valued. But we got out of teaching. We're not in those schools anymore. And then uh, there are another, another kind of influence that I see uh, often implicitly is that there is a belief in character education, that, they, that the fundamental role of the teacher is to um, teach kids responsibility because if they become responsible, then they'll do their schoolwork, even if they hate it. That's what responsible people do. You know, they'll be punctual even if they don't want to be where they're going. That's a, you know, that's a character. So there's this implicit character curriculum that in many ways supports traditional schooling, but it, you know, it's, it's its own uh, little world as well. 
Then you've got the National Council of Teachers of English, which is trying to tug everybody in a progressive direction. And, you know, you have one mentor teacher saying this, and then you get in line to run off your, uh, your copies of the worksheet, and the teacher will tell you something else. So that this idea that there's this progress toward uh, a unified concept, I think, is misguided. I think that it, it shows a lack of understanding of concept development, at least as I understand it from Vygotsky, um, and it just assumes a sort of homogeneity and unity of purpose that I don't think exists among educators. You know, any staff room has, you've got a grammarian and you've got a libertarian and you've got a writing workshop person and you've got a, you know, the faculties are all over the map often. One loves classic, one loves young adult lit. And, uh, the beginning teacher is sitting in the middle of all this being torn, you know, drawn and quartered, being pulled in every different direction. And uh, uh, one of my other students and I have a paper out called Competing Centers of Gravity. In other words, we're, that we didn't quite use the drawn and quartered metaphor, but we, you know, this idea that you're being pulled apart all the time in ways that make a sense of direction difficult. And uh, Vygotsky uses a metaphor, the twisting path of concept development, and I've borrowed that. And uh, Darren Rem and I, in this latest piece, find it's more like a twisting pretzel because it just keeps going, you know, around and around, and, you know, figure eight without seeming to go anywhere. So I, what I've... My, I, I believe strongly in, in data analysis, and one reason is because it makes me think as hard as I possibly can about the problems I'm looking at. And so this is an area where I would say that Vygotsky had, uh, was on the, you know, he was in the right hunt, but I think that he oversimplified it by, by with this pseudo-complex, I mean, uh, complex pseudo-concept concept, uh, I just think that in social circumstances, it's, it's, awfully, uh, it's awfully hard to achieve that. It sounds to me like you've moved a little bit from um, the, the paper you wrote about the twi twisting path of concept development for teaching. Yeah. Um, because it's, it sounded like your conclusions then, this was 2003, I think, were right. the teachers... The, the you know the pre-service teachers who had a strong concept of teaching were less likely to be pulled in different directions were less likely to be you know feel like they're being drawn and quartered than those teachers who really didn't have a strong concept developed um, I'm having an internet connection problem yeah uh, I, I didn't get that although I I, uh, I think I know what you're, you're getting at um, am I coming in you are now, yeah. It just it, it jumped a little bit. Jumped, okay. But go well, ahead. So uh, I would say, yeah, you know, that was uh, eight years ago. Yeah. So that, uh, and probably the writing started ten years ago. So there's no, there's no. I would be disappointed if I thought this <laughs> thing. Um, but it also, I think, uh, goes back to my own experience of coming out of a very tightly knit and tight. I, I guess I would say tightly controlled. Uh, teacher education program under George Hillux at Chicago. Uh, we were we were a small group who completely bought in, and we tended to get 
placed in Chicago public schools where you could pretty much do anything you wanted if it worked. And so we weren't under quite, you know, we, it was a, 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 there's something that I've, there's a term that I've used that has not been adopted uh, by, the, by the research community as a whole, but the idea of a conceptual home base, I still regard the MAT program at Chicago as my conceptual home base for understanding how to teach. And I think it was because it was small. Um, it had a, it was a one-man show. George Hillix was our, our professor. Uh, so there wasn't disagreement across courses. Um, and the placements we got tended not to contradict what we were being taught to do. Uh, whereas now I teach at a big state university. We have much larger teacher cohorts. There are other faculty members with other ideas teaching them and they're going into schools that are under tremendous pressure to produce uh, test scores and that's a difference in region and era that's that's just the way it is now so I, I, I guess kind of getting out of my own bubble and looking okay. more carefully at people from different programs that just didn't have that kind of conceptual unity at the basis uh, was uh, was pretty eye-popping for me and um, you know if, if you think of and if you if I step back uh, and look at my own concept development here these additional examples keep causing me to refine my conception of the concept or a conception of teacher education and uh, but in ways that I think are very that that continue to challenge me and uh, uh, make me want to keep looking at this you know I, I I imagine that I won't get tired of this anytime soon and it's because I I every time I think I've got my footing I slip a little bit with the next example that comes in just the slipping is what makes it fun. Um, you, you talk about in your book, I'm going to just shift a little bit. You talk yeah. about the link between concepts and happiness. And yeah. I thought that was, that was a fun section to read. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and that's something that actually came up during the course of the writing. I had not put that together. That's, that was completely new during the course of the writing. And it followed on the heels of my reading of The Psychology of Art. And I wrote a paper that just came out in Mind, Culture, and Activity that is a look at the psychology of art uh, in conjunction with some later essays that he wrote on uh, the emotions. And uh, one of the things that's really central to everything about Vygotsky is the role of affect, the role of the emotions. Um, and he doesn't do binaries. He doesn't have a cognition affect differentiation uh, the way you, you can find in psychology. And that, that's, a, I guess I would say cognitive psychology, that field seems to me not to have a strong affective dimension to it. Um, and and I, I don't want them to be my whipping boy because I've learned a lot and there's some very, very smart people uh, that, I've, that I've met and read through my immersion in information processing, but I would say that that's a limitation uh, that I don't find in Vygotsky. And, you know, Vygotsky has its own limitations. But, um, so I, 
I had to I had to consider if if affect is central, it can't be absent from concept development. So then I had and so I had to think, well, what evidence do I have of affect in concept development? You know, I couldn't just make it up and you know assert it because Vygotsky said so. You know, eighty years ago in a different place. Um, I, I had to try to find evidence for the role of affect in cognition. And actually, in a, a writing study that I had finished recently, uh, showed very, uh, it was a protocol analysis, a think aloud study of a writer uh, write, doing academic writing for school. Uh, and, I, and I had had another study of kids and their affective engagement with their school writing. And um, it seemed that one thing that one thing that I found evidence for is that a sense of strong sense of self and confidence as a writer made writing and the and the understandings that can emerge through writing a more doable experience. Not to say it's never frustrating. But, um, for instance, the, the, the student writer that we looked at had this way of, of avoiding being blocked by saying, I, can't, I don't know what word to put here, I'll come back later. Now, if you could get kids to do that on a grand scale, a whole lot of writing problems would be would resolved. Just to get people to say, you, you don't have to get stuck on this. You can come back later. Um, and it was her, it was her confidence that she was going to finish this thing. She wasn't going to get these little blips, you know, these little, uh, uh, speed bumps. They weren't going to, they might slow her down, but she could go over them and then come back. And that, I, I think that that was a, a, that that was a consequence of having had many positive experiences as a writer in school to the point where she had confidence, she felt confident that she could come back and find a solution to something that was puzzling her at the time. Um, and so this idea of having a, uh, the, the term that we came up with um, was meta-experience, the way that you experience your experiences. The manner in which you experience your experiences frames your experience of new experiences and that can be negative. You know, you thought most people, I think, with writer's block have had a bad experience that stops them. And uh, whereas writers who, like I know, if something's not going well with me that I'm trying to write, I can, I can put it down and come back to it. And I, I just have this supreme confidence that I've developed over time that I'll be able to finish it. That I'll, that even if a solution isn't there right now, it will be there. You've done it. You've done it before enough times. Uh, but I, I, that's right. That's right. That the development of one's con. That if if I go back to my garden, if I had killed plants and quit, I think it would have been a, a sh uh, indication of the ways in which negative experiences prevented me from developing the concepts that I, that I, that at least the, the, the level of conceptual understanding that I presently have, which is less than it will be 
in another two years, I assume, because I keep on doing this. So, concepts relate to happiness. Yeah, happiness, not in the superficial sense. Mm -hmm. I think of um, the, uh, there was a guy in Chicago named um, Mahali, Shikson Mahali, uh, who wrote about flow experiences, and he when he talked about happiness, it was a very deep and profound sense of uh, satisfaction that's different from just hedonistic enjoyment. So I think it's always important to stress that when when I talk about happiness, I'm talking about deep-seated happiness and not just feeling good. You, you've also talked about... Um how concepts enhance one's ability to kind of anticipate future events? Sure, and in a, in a, in a happy or satisfying way. So again, I'll just, I'm sorry if people aren't interested in gardening, but <laughs> I'm much happier when I transplant things and they live than I am when I transplant things and they die. And so my ability to anticipate the outcome, and that this is another thing that, that, came up during the writing of the book, is that um, concepts don't enable you to predict the future, but they do enable you to anticipate with some confidence how things will turn out. And so the, the, the more, the better a concept I have for something, the more likely I am to construct an outcome that I'm happy with. Uh, and again, if, if, you, if you know your way around gardening, if you plant your uh, hostas in the sun, they will die. I can guarantee you that. Um, or if you plant them outside your fence, deer will eat them. Now, I know these things because I've killed them by putting them in the sun, and I've had deer eat them outside the fence. And so this idea that I can, my, my understanding of this particular plant has led me to grasp where I can put it in such a way that future occasions of putting these things on the ground will lead to plants surviving and looking good over time. So that makes, so my, the affective confidence that I have in the concept that I've got produces ac actions on my part that in turn make me happy again because they work and that's what I want. I, I just I find it really interesting when you talk about learning learning concepts of gardening by killing things, and I wonder if uh, <laughs> you know if if failure coupled with perseverance or is one of the better ways you know to to achieve concepts or do you think that's just a thing for you? Well, you know, I I would this is this is where Vygotsky would probably jump in and say, but if you had had if you had had the uh, academic training. If you'd had the scientific concept in conjunction with the early learning, you would not have made so many mistakes. So I think that that is a limitation of, of you know, this everyday concept development, that it probably is more mistake-ridden. Because it, there is a, you know, there's a certain trial and error uh, dimension to it. And actually, one of the things I see in beginning teachers who don't have a, much of a conception at all is that they teach by trial and error, and the errors are very discouraging. Hmm. And 
so you know you talk about error in combination with perseverance, absolutely. But uh, a strong, like I think that the that the conception of instructional planning that I learned from George Hillocks in my master's coursework made it so that I had less trial and error work to do because I had a pretty good understanding of how to plan things that were more likely to work, not necessarily that would work, uh, but that were that had a pretty good shot. And then I'd refine that understanding when I tried to apply it for the, you know, through the various iterations of of trying it out in the classroom. So, um, you know, my, my gardening examples uh, need to be accompanied by the understanding that I'd had no formal training. And so I would read stuff, but often I'd read, do post hoc reading to try to understand why what I'd done hadn't worked. So, and I guess, again, ideally, the more robust concept comes from that interplay between conceptual fields. And so that, I, I, I'm glad you followed up with those questions, because it helped me clarify that, I think. So would you consider that post hoc reading uh, an academic well, yeah, this building is very, as a concept? Or is this, this more of that kind of middle ground that you talked about? That in-between area, you know? Yeah. Uh, no one taught it to me. I chose to subscribe. I I pick the magazines to subscribe to, although, you know, you, you see the ones over at the garden centers you like, and you think, oh, that's probably, must be a good one if they're selling it, or uh, you just try one for a year and decide you don't like it, things like that. But that would be quite different from me going over to the University of Georgia Horticulture Department and taking classes from, there are a lot of really good people over there. That would have been much more beneficial, but I had, you know, my day job, and I, I didn't have time to do that. So, you know, we're all limited, unless we're full-time students, we're all limited by these exigencies of life. And um, the, then if you are a full-time student, you don't often have the opportunity to, to practice the, uh, you know, the theoretical teachings and, um, and round out that concept. I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you if there's any element of Vygotsky's thinking about concepts that you wanted to address that you really think maybe we haven't touched upon or that I, I could have asked or that you'd like me to ask. Well, you know, I think that you've done a, you've 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 helped me think about the things that I think are worth at least for me to talk about. Um but I, I would say that at least where I am now, you've given me a good opportunity to air out uh, the things that I think are good, that, that, that matter to me in terms of my interests as a, an educator with a developmental emphasis. Then can you help me with one thing? Um, can you just talk about a little bit about word meaning and concepts? Oh, okay. And this is what... Um, uh, one one of Vygotsky's, I guess you call limitations or strengths. I don't know. Is that he was very logocentric. Uh, the word you know, speech was what you know was the the tool of tools, as one of someone in that crowd called it. Um, and so for Vygotsky, uh, I'll just go back to some of the simple examples um, of 
he he viewed somebody's the unity with which someone affiliated items around a term like fish as indicative of what kind of concept the person had for the term. So word meaning the three-year-old might think that a whale is a fish and maybe the ten-year-old too, I don't know. Um, but over time, presumably, uh, the, the items that you, that you associate with the term would cohere around something very consistent. Okay? So that's with fish. Uh, so uh, it, from a teaching standpoint, there might be something like being student-centered or cooperative learning or instructional scaffolding or all these terms um, that we uh, so, so we know that we might know that term and we might know that through some kind of formal exposure, academic exposure. You might have heard of multiculturalism or, you know, the, our field is pretty rife with all these, uh, with all these great terms. But, but what you associate with the term cooperative learning or the term multiculturalism over time, presumably is a process of weeding out what doesn't belong and settling on what does. Now, one thing I've tried to argue is that it's not as quite as neat and linear as that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it, the harder the concept is, less likely it is you'll ever actually get there. So, but analytically, you know, from a research point of view, word meaning, the, the, what we associate with these words indicates how we conceptualize that thing. All right? Does that? Yeah. So. Okay. And and the, and the words themselves are, um, are 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 they our words? Are they sort of out there? Well, that's them? part of the trick, you know. Uh, does anybody have naming rights to student-centeredness? And this is one of the things in the Twisting Path paper I really had to come to terms with was just because someone wrote in a book what students, just because Larry Cuban wrote what student-centeredness means, does that mean that that woman's not student-centered? Not to her. Uh, so it depends on who gets to make the call. And uh, you know, I don't think any of us has that authority. So it's, it's really perspective-driven. Uh, I can't say for certain who's really doing cooperative learning. Even though I've seen some things that personally I wouldn't, that teachers were calling cooperative learning that I would say weren't. Uh, no, but who's, who gets to make that judgment? Uh, I don't know. And I think that that is a, a and there's a, there's a relativity, a relativeness to these questions, especially with social issues. Now, again, maybe we could, you know, the biologists have been, have been constructing taxonomies for, for a long, long time now. You know, they, they do get to say what a butterfly is and what isn't. And they can pretty much, they can do that with authority, which is different from me saying, I know what instructional scaffolding is and you're not doing it. So it sounds to me like when you come to understand a concept, or simply speaking, a word, you're coming to understand what 
everybody else understands about I mean, would those who have an authoritative understanding understand yeah. about the word or not, not so well, much? Yeah. And I think that's why there are, you know, you take something like whole language. Does anyone really have the right of, you know, to make the call whether something's a whole language practice or not or whether a teacher is whole language or not? My daughter, when she was in first grade, the very first thing out of her mouth on parents' night was, I'm a whole language teacher, and then she proceeded to explain how she was teaching diphthongs, and uh, uh, you know, where it was basically a phonics approach. You know, looked to me like a whole, you know, a, a primarily a phonics-driven approach. I don't, but she was calling herself a whole language teacher, maybe because she also used authentic children's books. I don't know, but. Uh, uh, you know, these are this is the this is fuzzy stuff. I and I think that you're right to be puzzled by it because I I'm as you can see I'm having trouble uh, answering your question very well um, because I think that uh, you know again especially with social issues nobody owns the concept uh, even in in terms of say the butterfly one, one thing you could say is who cares if it's a moth or a butterfly? Let's just watch it fly around. You know, it, for all intents and purposes, you know, it, it walks and talks uh, and waddles like a butterfly, and so who cares? Uh, you know, at what point does it matter whether it's a moth or not? I, th I think the thing that sh that just always struck me about this theory. Um, is just the idea of the outside world, the social, the the historical, the cultural, um, and the inter and the interior person, and how those things kind of interact. That's that that's yeah. just the general principle that has drawn me toward this style of writing. You know, this style of thinking. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's and, you know, and you. Uh, I think that one tension that we haven't looked at is that between the individual and the collective which is uh, which is a, I think a one that most people who gravitate broadly speaking to Vygotsky or activity theory or any of these things what do you foreground the individual in context or the context made up of individuals and that's a, that's a that's a topic for another day but uh, it's something that I, I think you can't not think about. I have one really lighthearted question to wrap up. All right. If I may. Um, in your view, how can Vygotsky's theory of concepts um, help us deal with the fact that we're all going to die? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably doesn't do you much good after you're dead. 30 seconds. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'll say, you know, I, I, I hope I get more than 30 seconds, but um, it depends on how you conceive of what death is. And so I've been to funerals where the governing assumption, and this was, I'll, I'll just give one example. Uh, this is a big Chicago area Catholic family where the governing assumption was that the deceased was in heaven and 
you know, had passed on to a better place, and um, it was we'd all miss her, but we were, but there was a certain degree of envy for being in that better place. And I don't happen to believe that. So my conception of death is uh, was that this is it. You know, you don't, uh, and it. And, and in that particular one, it's a very sad occasion for me. But, you know, if you see, if you conceive of death as the passage to a better place, or if you conceive of it as a time to wail and moan, or if you conceive of it as a time to celebrate all life, you know, it, it, that will frame what you think this passing is. You know, especially if, if, if you believe in life after death, you'll have, in whatever form, you'll have a very different experience of the event than you will if you don't think that. So, I, you know, there, part, of, part of what Vygotsky has been useful for me for is to understand how people develop these frameworks. And if you think of religion as a, a, a powerful cultural framework... And if people do indeed appropriate the concepts from their religions, uh, religion provides very different uh, conceptions of death and how the living uh, cope with it, I guess, is, or, or how, they, how they experience and how they process and how they act on the death. Well, I'd, I'd have to say um, the whole idea of distributed mind and distributed cognition and the fact that concepts are potentially social in origin it's just it's such an interesting and like mysterious thing to think about that it actually helps me deal with death because i don't believe i'm i'm coming to to believe that uh you know the mind isn't really located so much in the skull and and so therefore perhaps the life isn't located so much on this time frame so well i think you've got a dissertation topic there <laughs> well <laughs> on, on that note maybe we should wrap it up yeah probably um, yeah but, i think this yep. went on a little long but i really appreciate it hey uh, i enjoyed great talking to you okay okay bye-bye